First Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again we thank you for your word, that you cared enough about us to breathe out of eternity these words that we can study, illumined by your Holy Spirit as we read what you've said. Guide us in this time, that we would understand it, we would see its implications in our thoughts, our beliefs, our actions. Give us alertness of mind as we study these verses together. And we'll give you praise and thanks as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This portion of the opening of the fifth chapter, verses 1 to 4, is talking about leadership in the local church. That's obviously the focus of it. Uh, it was sort of reminded, came to my mind several times during this week that, uh, well, Gary, you, you've already spent two weeks on those four verses. And there's a lot of lessons there. You only got two of them done. So my goal today is to maybe add to that, uh, try you know, push forward, maybe get more than just one additional lesson looked at. I make no promises, but we'll move forward and see what, what can be done. We discovered that God's intention is that the local church actually has leadership. But not only that the local church has leadership, but that the leadership of the local church would operate in a very countercultural manner, as is true throughout 1 Peter. The issue of what does it mean to live as sojourners and exiles in a fallen world? And what it means is to live counterculturally in so many different ways. And one of the aspects of it here we encounter as it comes to the leadership of a local body. God does not want a church operating like worldly organizations. It does not want, he does not want it led the way world's organizations are led. And he's not talking about ethics here. Now, the focus is not so much on morality. It would go without saying God doesn't want unethical behavior or immoral behavior on the part of local church leaders. We wouldn't need the verses. It would just be part of the understanding, well, of course, as disciples, that's not what we do. More, he is saying, the way you exercise leadership has to be distinctive and different. Remember in Matthew, we talked about in chapter 20, when he saw his disciples sorting out this question of leadership and, and authority, and he challenged them. This is the way the world operates. This is how the world views authority. He says, not so with you. This is not how he wants it run, not how he wants it to do. And so we talked a lot about needing to uh, avoid the temptation to think, oh, well, the world knows how organizations should operate, so let's, let's read the latest leadership management theories and sort of make application. Our church will be more efficient. It will run more effectively. God doesn't want that to happen. The first of the lessons of all of this that we looked at, and I'm 
doing this real briefly, you notice, uh, was that uh, God actually intends the local church to have leadership. Uh, I've read and encountered over the years in ministry people as believers who, much like people in the world, have an idealized view of humanity that says, oh, well, we don't need government, we don't need rulers, we just set up the right conditions, the inherent goodness of mankind will usher out and blossom and... No, we, in, the, in the fallen world, we need authority structure because what blossoms is worse and worse problems apart from that. And God, as a measure of his grace, uh, has implemented government and authority structures uh, to carry the sword, so to speak, and try to keep in check abuses of sin. In the context of a church, even though made up of redeemed people, it's made up of redeemed people under construction. And therefore... Because they're still under construction, lots of problems like in the world can emerge in the absence of leadership. God wants leadership to be there, and we talked about more about that issue. The second lesson that we spent time on last week was the fact that God has specifically here and other places said, the leaders of a church, the ones that I've assigned to that, I want them to understand that their primary task is being a shepherd, not a ruler, in the way the world understands the word ruler. Their task is primarily to be a shepherd. We looked at Ezekiel chapter 34, where God was confronting the shepherds of Israel because they weren't doing what a shepherd was supposed to be doing. And in so doing, we understand, okay, well, that's what a shepherd's supposed to be doing. We looked at Acts chapter 20, where Paul recounted with the Ephesian elders the nature of his ministry as a shepherd when he was heading the church at Ephesus. Shepherding, feeding the flock. And of course, the reminder to Peter in John chapter 21, feed my sheep. Three times, feed the sheep. That's the task of shepherds. And we saw it was God who assigns leaders as shepherds to be responsible for the flock. Now that bridges us into lesson three, which we're into already in some sort of record introductory time. Lesson three, remember that the church is actually God's flock, not the leader's flock. Let me repeat that. The church is actually God's flock, not the leader's flock. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not as compulsion. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, for shame, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The church is God's flock, not the shepherd's flock, ultimately. And you know, if you've studied through the New Testament, that God gives us a number of word images of the church. The church is a very multi-dimensioned thing. No one word adequately gives us a picture of what it's really all about. And so as you're reading through the New Testament, you find uh, the physical body being used at times as an illustration of the way a church operates, a local church operates, and is intended to operate. We've seen the idea of being a family. That image is used in various of the epistles to try to make it clear to us, okay, I want a church, this is how I want a church to be. And how it really lives is in a family sense. Even earlier in First Peter, we were talking about the image of the of the living building, you know, the stones being built together and all of that. Uh, 
Various images, and I'm not going to go into all of the ones that are in the New Testament today. It's kind of beside our point. But I want you to understand that every image has a reason behind God giving it to us. Uh, We need to take every image he gives us seriously. And always assess a church, our church, in light of, well, how are we doing on this image? We might feel we're doing pretty good on one of the images, And then we look at something else and we say, well, I don't know if we're doing so good on that. And so God wants us to constantly be in a self-corrective mode to say, okay, Lord, we want to be a family. We want to be a body. We want to be a living body, a living institution, building being built. Yes, we want to be a flock. All of these things need to be constantly assessed because life keeps unfolding. And to have been doing what you're supposed to have done last week doesn't mean you're doing it this week. Or last year doesn't mean it's working out right this year. Constant reassessment. The local church is God's flock. The local church, our local church, isn't Gary's flock. No local church is Paul's flock. And most assuredly, no local church is some denomination's flock. And it's not the Pope's flock. All right, if I basically cover everybody. Uh, uh, they, it's God's flock, not people's flock. A local church, that flock, he tells us here, is a charge given to a shepherd. It's a charge. It's not their flock, but it's a charge given to that shepherd. The flock, the flock. So, what does God mean by the phrase, the flock that is in your charge? Verse 3 says, not domineering over those in your charge. What does that mean? What does God mean by saying the flock in your charge? Well, the word charge here is the Greek word kleros. Literally, the word kleros in the Greek language means something that's been assigned by the casting of lots. Well, where'd that come from? What came from this? The Greeks believed that the will of the gods, and of course their understanding of God, gods plural, was all corrupted, as all of humanities is, apart from the word of God. But nonetheless, they did have sort of a theology they followed. Their understanding of the gods and the will of the gods is that the casting of lots by the oracle or some other religiously identified leader would reveal the will of the gods. So gradually, the word kleros came to imply in the Greek language a divine assignment to a task. Now, of course, to the Greek, when, they, when you say divine assignment, they weren't thinking Yahweh, the one and only God, the one true God. That's not their mindset, but they were still thinking in the plurality of things. Well, this is, this is God's assignment. That's where the word kleros come. God chooses to use that word. He didn't originate it in the Bible. It was originating in the Greek culture. But he chose under, for his own purposes to use that word here. And he says, my will, my assignments are seen in a certain way. I assign people. I give a divine assignment. And the church leader is given a divine assignment a charge over a particular flock or with a particular flock. 
It's a great word, really, when you think about it that way. It's a great word to describe spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders in the local church. They are leaders there by divine assignment. They're not there because of popularity contests, or they're not supposed to be. They're there by divine assignment. God assigns kleros. He assigns certain people to be shepherding flocks, in this case, his flock, local flock. But those assigned shepherds, under-shepherds, don't own the flock. You see the principle? I mean, it's not their flock. It's God's flock. But he gives them an assignment to work with it. The leader, therefore, serves as a steward of God's flock, not an owner of God's flock. By the way, think about it in terms of your work world. Most of you don't own your own business. (laughs) And so... When you're working for someone, you're a steward of that role, but you don't own the business. You know, you follow, so there's an image here that applies with God. You have a role in the church, but he owns the church. I mean, it's his church. It's his flock. You have a task within it. A steward, not an owner. And if you want to get a hold of one of those things that that you're not supposed to let go of, is to always remind yourself that a church leader is a steward, not an owner. And if they start to act too much like an owner, it becomes onerous. It becomes a problem. And they should lovingly be reminded, you don't own this thing. God owns it. Lovingly reminded. Not an embittered reminder, but still, here's the principle. It's God's flock, not the leaders. Now, the next logical question tied to that is if, if in fact, the church is God's flock, not the leaders, and he's assigned, charged, kleros people, how do we know who God has assigned kleros to a local flock? How do you go about discovering that kleros of God? Good question. Ironically, and I, and I underscore this word ironically, prior to Pentecost in the development of the early church, the kleros of God was actually seen by the casting of lots. In other words, how do we know God's will for his flock, his people? In the Old Testament, the high priest had built into the breastplate of his the Uman and the Thuman, which was really a, a lot sort of thing, they would, in determining on behalf of the people the guidance of God on an issue, would cast that, and that casting of lots would demonstrate God's leadership. It wasn't gambling. It was what God used to provide guidance. In Acts chapter 1, pre-Pentecost now, in verses 5 to 26, you see the early disciples gathered in, after Christ's ascension, and they were discussing among themselves, Judas blew it, he's dead, he's not here, we, we need to find who God would have to take his place. You know, God, we, we know you, your intention was that there would be the twelve. Who do, we, who do we put in the place of Judas? 
And in verses 20, starting in verse 23 of chapter 1 of Acts, it says, And they, they put forward two people, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you've chosen. Chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And in verse 26 it says, They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And then he was numbered among the eleven to fill out the twelve. Now, understand... God is not laying out for us here that how he wants us to operate as believers is to just have a little gambling on the side, you know. A good reminder for those that think, hey, you know, I think, I think maybe bingo's a good way to raise money for the church. Listen, God is not encouraging a game of chance to raise money for the church. Heaven forbid. Uh, no, no, that's not what it is. Uh, the disciples' apostles were not gambling. They were seeking God's leadership, following as best they understood, now that they had been cast out of the Jewish people, the umim and the thumim approach on the high priest's breastplate. We prayed, we looked at the qualifications, because the verses preceding to what I read to you were the qualifications. Here's two people that really seem both to fit this. Guide us, Lord. And so they cast a lot, fell to Matthias. Their goal was finding the charged one, the kleros. Who is it that God has determined to be in a particular role? Now, I took a little bit of time with that simply because you wouldn't believe, or maybe you would, the kinds of crazy things that people have said out of this portion of the book of Acts. Uh, But since I know you've seen a lot of crazy things and encountered them, uh, this is what this passage is talking about. Every sound biblical expositor agrees at that point. It tells you something about somebody who doesn't. They are not sound. They are springboarding off the scriptures into something else. So we all agree on that. Now, by Acts chapter 13, however, we discover that the kleros of God no longer was coming for the church at large through that casting of lots by the core leaders. By Acts chapter 13, we saw God was showing his kleros about leadership assignment in a different fashion. Listen to these words beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13 of Acts. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Now set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them, the Kleros. Uh, and after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, sent them off. You see, from that point onward, and I believe probably prior to that time, but this is the first episode in the unfolding of the early church where we encounter it, where God, for his own purposes, makes it plain to us, the leaders of the church got God's guidance because the Holy Spirit directly now, having been given at Pentecost, was giving them peace about something he wanted done. There was a consensus leading of the Holy Spirit understood 
by others who already had been given the kleros, the charge, to be in shepherding leadership. Consensus leading. So how do we discover the kleros that God's talking about in First Peter chapter 5? The assignment. How do you find it? By the leaders, recognized leaders in the local church, finding spirit-led consensus about an individual for a task. That's how it's done. Now, there's details about how that could work out in practice, and I don't want to get into those, but still, you see, God is saying, I'm now, I'm still in the assigning business. People are in a role because I've assigned them to it. And now, through this church age situation, where the Holy Spirit not only indwells the redeemed, but in a special way provides direction of the kleros of God for a church, consensus among the leaders as they pray and so forth. God's going to give it to them, and that's how they'll know. Once again, not a popularity contest. We don't know that, uh, that uh, Paul and, and Barnabas were any more popular than any of these other leaders at Antioch, but God nonetheless said, these are the people And it was unmistakable direction in that sense. God had laid it clearly on their hearts. So, the church is God's flock. It's not the leader's or the shepherd's flock. Although he sovereignly assigns leaders, shepherds, to a church. Now, thinking about the assigned shepherds, because that was that lesson, okay? It's, it's God's church, not the, not the assigned shepherd, but they are assigned. Let's, let's go to the next lesson. See, two today. Uh, the next lesson we encounter, verses 2 and 3, the shepherd, the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not shameful gain, but eagerly, not dominating over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. Lesson 4. Don't forget that the leaders still remain only sheep in God's flock. Don't forget that. If you study church history, is both I have a desire to study history, I'm a historian, but also formally had to study volumes and volumes and volumes of it. If one wanted to put their finger on one of the causations of a lot of problems in church history, it's that people forgot that the leaders still were sheep. And they thought they were in some other category now, some other sort of hybrid place. You know, they were, in the Greek sense, almost demigods, you know, some sort of mixture of of God and humanity. There is not an assigned church leader from God, who is not still a sheep. He doesn't change that condition. They're still a sheep. We have a class assignment from God, yes, but we're still a sheep, like everybody else. God's assigned church leaders are sheep who happen to be under-shepherds. There's only one real shepherd, 
goes on to tell us in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears. I mean, there's one who doesn't remain a sheep because he's never been a sheep. The Lord Jesus. You know, he's the chief shepherd. Everybody else is kind of an under-shepherd under him. But they don't stop being sheep, even though they have this temporary task assigned to them. The chief shepherd and the under-shepherd sheep. Uh, I think every pastor would do well to have written on a three-by-five they put on their mirror so that every morning when they're brushing their teeth and shaving, it says, remember you're still a sheep. But also remember the task God's given you. Uh, I think there'd be great balance in that reality in note of reality for people. I was thinking 1 Corinthians chapter 3 illustrates this, this principle, this balance between being an under-shepherd and still being a sheep. Paul speaking, and he says, well, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as God's assigned, kleros, as God has assigned each one their task. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. By that, that doesn't mean that they're unimportant. Christ died for them. That's not what he means, like they're nothing. But in this task, they're nothing. (laughs) I mean, ultimately, only God gives growth. Only God does that. Only God can do those things. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we're God's fellow workers you're God's field, God's building. Uh, other images you see emerging. And he says, listen, only God's the one, only God's the real player here. We're all, we're all in roles to carry out his task. And he gives us that permission, enables us through his spirit. But it's God who does it. Nobody has ever grown as a disciple because of me. But God's given me the privilege of sharing his word and working with people one-on-one so that God who gives the growth has worked in people's lives maybe many times despite me. But but he has done it. You see, who is the one? He is the one. He is the one. I was thinking in the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians, verses 6 to 7, it says, I've applied all these things to myself in Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written, that none of you would be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if, and if you received it, Why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? What great notes of sobriety are there, brothers and sisters? God makes it plain. Church leaders are sheep who shepherd. God gives them that privilege. He's enabled them to do it. But it's God who's the wonder. Now, it's important, even as church leaders and everybody in the church reminds themselves of the fact that under-shepherds are still sheep, 
that they also remember that God calls for the people to respect and obey the under-shepherds. It doesn't do much good to assign under-shepherds who the sheep ignore. Then, then what's, their, what's their role then? I mean, what are they out there for? They're in one part of the pasture and the sheep are all over here? No. You know, they, they've got a task to be going on. Uh, I was thinking of 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. It says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Under shepherds are still sheep. But they have a role, a divinely assigned role. And the other sheep have a divinely assigned responsibility toward them. You're supposed to esteem them. You're supposed to respect them. And do it in love. Not in intimidating fear, but in love. You you respect them. Yet even here, there has to be balance. We need biblical balance. Respect and esteem the sheep under shepherd, (laughs) or under shepherd sheep, if you want to put it that way. But don't fall into hero worship. Don't fall into hero worship. The, the reality here is that the only one who deserves our worship is the chief shepherd, who we're reminded in verse 4 is coming. If you're going to worship somebody, worship the chief shepherd. You don't worship the under-shepherds, especially since the under-shepherds are still sheep. Put the under-shepherds up on some sort of pedestal, where you, they're just far enough away you don't realize they're still sheep. You fall into these sort of traps. But, uh, or, my personal guess is that you can be uh, making sure that the under-shepherd is, you're in such a huge thing that nobody ever has real connection to the under-shepherd. So <laughs> it's easy to idealize and come up with some sort of idea what they're like, and then you worship whatever it is in your image. Sort of like the fan club of an actor or actress. It's like... They don't have a sliced idea who these people are. But, but they have an idea in their mind of what they think they are, and they want to worship that. Uh, listen, we reserve our worship for the chief shepherd, not the under-shepherds. So how are you doing with this realism-respect dynamic here? You know, how are you doing with it? There's no place in the plan of God for the local church for dishonoring the under-shepherds. Well, that doesn't mean if an under-shepherd's teaching something false, they're not to be confronted about it. Of course they are, just like any sheep would be confronted about something false. But what God says, listen, uh, there's no place to just go around dishonoring the under-shepherd. People say, well, I don't like that person. So what? <laughs> if, if you're called upon to honor the honor the governor and the king and the president, independent of their type of person, you find it difficult to show honor, to speak respectfully toward, toward a leader? Come on, brothers and sisters. Uh, no place for dishonoring. 
Speaking of the sheep who are also shepherds, kind of keep those two things together. (laughs) Are you making their task easy or hard? Uh, In Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls, is those who have to give an account, because they have to, before the Lord. Uh, Let them do it with joy, not with groaning. For that'll be no advantage to you. Do, uh, do the shepherds that God has placed in your life over time been people who carry out their task with joy or groaning? Uh, this word groans an interesting word, stenazo in the Greek. Uh, it means to groan deep within oneself. This is not the same thing as murmuring and grumbling. Those are different words. Uh, this word refers to a deep sighing inside. Think about something that has been a great disappointment to you. Those of you that have had children, think about a time when that child has been a great disappointment to you. Do you disown them? No, but you sigh. That's the meaning of this word. By the way, it's used in Romans 8.23, the same stenazo word is used, where in describing the believer, after talking about how all creation is groaning, waiting for release, it then it goes ahead and says this about the believer, we groan inwardly as we await adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Sort of the Romans 7, I'm groaning inwardly, there's a war going on in my body, the members of my body warring against this, the, you know, my heart that wants to please God. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's stenazo. God says, don't, don't deal with the sheep who are shepherds in such a way that they sigh deeply. And like Romans 7, say, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, Lord, take me. (laughs) Who will deliver me from this task? You know, as the years have gone on, and I've been in different places of ministry to others, other pastors and Christian workers, my heart breaks I've known people who sigh deeply within, in this way, groaning inside, not grumbling about their people, not grumbling about the church. There are those who do that. Now, that's sin, all right? That's not what I'm talking about. These are people inside who are so deeply grieved because of the sheep they love and the way the sheep treat them. By the way, God, who knows everything, knows who is making the task of the sheep he's assigned, Kleros, to be a shepherd. A joy 
understand who it is that is making their task groaning. And he holds every redeemed believer accountable for which it is in their life. You don't think this stuff is important? Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. It is important. It is important. So don't forget, lesson four, uh, leaders are still only sheep in God's flock, so we don't get out of whack on that. But at the same time, because we're not out of whack on that, we don't want to get out of whack on something else. Let's remember that we're still to esteem them and to love them and to regard them in love. And let's make their task not one of groaning, but one of joy. God holds the shepherd, who is a sheep, accountable for their teaching. He holds them accountable for their feeding. He holds them accountable for their faithful service. He holds every individual sheep in the flock accountable for whether they have made life living hell for the people who have had the kleros of God for that body. And everybody, before the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne, but before the, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema, <laughs> God's going to ask some tough questions. He says, yeah, hey, I signed this person to, as a sheep, but he, I signed him to be kind of a shepherd and under shepherd with me and here I want you to hear something a lot of inner groanings I think of Romans 8 sighs too deep for words here let's, let's, let's have some inner groan let's listen to this for a little bit Gary you hear all of that oh it's heartbreaking oh, it's heartbreaking you caused it oh Lord oh Lord who the Alpha and Omega is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we could gather as sheep in the flock together. Thank you for saving us, putting us in a flock, putting us in a family. Thank you for your word. Continue to do a work in each of us, Lord, as we seek to please you with our lives, to grow as disciples, to be useful in your hands. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.